grateful. That is lovely. We are wrapping our series of The Undivided Life this morning, uh, and uh, we have a lot to dig into. I want to give you my outline for those who take notes. Here's the outline. Uh, I'm going to read scripture. I did not put it uh, on screen for this first one because I want us to listen with our ears and our hearts. So I will read scripture. Then there will be some reflection slash commentary on uh, where we will kick off. Then we'll return to the text and immerse ourselves in the text some more. Then there will be further reflection and commentary on the text. And then we will stand together and we will kind of offer as both kind of a prayer of confession and a prayer of our heart's desire. We will recite part of a psalm together uh, and then we will sing uh, in uh, reflection and then pray and go. And all of that as quick as I just said that, will take probably uh, a while. Um, so we, we don't keep time. We just know when we're supposed to be done is when we're done. Right? So I'd like to read. We'll be reading from the Gospel of John to begin that we set ourselves in this and then we'll circle back within the, the, the teaching on this text. But we are in John chapter 1. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is my hope and prayer that we would have eyes to see this morning the one who is around us, who is among us, and who dwells within us, and that we will be led, guided, instructed, awakened because of the Christ among us, around us, and within us. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, I bless you for the gift of this church. Uh, we desire to live in such a way uh, that we walk with you, God. We grow up in you, and we love well that people would see you, experience you, and come to know you more and more. So God, may the posture and meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you, God. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So we're wrapping this series, The Undivided Life, uh, and the essence of this series is that we would live from a place of wholeness, completeness, oneness, if you will, so that we do not divide life up or compartmentalize life into things like, well, there's work life. 
Then there's home life. There might be social life. Oh, and then there's church life over here with these people. But that we would learn to live as one so we bring our whole selves to all of those places and all of those roles, but we do not live as different people in those places and in those roles. The hope is that we would live united in oneness. So a story I, I think that helps kind of pull this together, the essence of this series. Uh, one of my favorite writers and thinkers is a priest and theologist, uh, Ronald Rollheiser, and he wrote a number of books, but one uh, book that he wrote, it's actually this little book, and it's called Domestic Monastery. Domestic Monastery, and I think it speaks into this idea, this essence of the undivided life. He uh, begins with this idea as a spiritual writer. He says this, first slide. Um, he says, there is a tradition strong among spiritual writers that we will not advance within spiritual life unless we pray at least an hour a day privately. He says, we have this among us. And then he at one point taught a workshop on this idea of praying for an hour a day. And a woman came up to him after he did this workshop and she said, I am at home with young children. Where would I ever find an uninterrupted hour a day? She moaned. Anyone? He then says this in reflection. If you are home alone with small children whose needs give you little uninterrupted time, then you don't need an hour of private prayer daily. Raising small children, if it is done with love and generosity, will do for you exactly what private prayer does. Are you with me? He further explains this response by talking about uh, a gentleman, Carlos Coretta, a 20th century priest and author who spent years in the Sahara Desert praying by himself. Yet he once confessed that he felt that his mother, who spent nearly 30 years raising children, was much more contemplative than he was and was much less selfish than he was. The conclusion we should draw from this is not that there was anything wrong with his long hours of prayer in the desert, but that there was something very right about the many years his mother lived an interrupted life, yet herself was undivided. Because she was amid the noise and demands of small children. Certain vocations, uh, for example, raising children, offer a perfect setting for living a contemplative life. Rollheiser then says this, they provide a desert for reflection, a real monastery. Her constant contact with young children gives her a privileged opportunity to be in harmony with the mild and learn empathy, patience, and unselfishness. The wisdom is here that for years, while she is raising small children, her time is not her own. 
Her own needs have to be placed second, and every time she turns around, some hand is reaching out for her demanding something. For me, maybe you can uh, understand it's like the walls of the house echo, mom, mom. Are you with me? Years of this can mature most anyone. It is because of this that she does not need during this time to pray for an hour a day in solitude. And it's precisely because of this that the rest of us who do not have constant contact with small children do need practices that build monasteries as a part of our daily routines. He finishes this way, a monastery is not so much a place set apart for monks and nuns as it is a place set apart, period. A place to learn the value of powerlessness and a place to learn that time is not ours, but God's. For me, there are many monasteries I enter into each day. There is the quiet of my office tucked into the corner of our basement, that I will go into each morning to pray and read and then wield a pen within writing. And then there is the kitchen where I wield a butter knife where I make my son's lunches every day for school, a monastery. And then there is my car where I give ear to podcasts as I move from meeting to meeting which themselves remind me of my smallness and need for divine wisdom, patience, and love. This provides intentionality in being apprenticed to the person and way of Jesus. And as I unpacked last week, we all know there is a distinction, sadly in some ways, to be made between claiming religious beliefs about God and actually following the way and person of Jesus. Pastor and author Mark, John Mark Comer gives really good language to it in his book, practicing the way. To follow Jesus meant to walk alongside him in a posture of listening, learning, observation, obedience, and imitation. For Jesus' first apprentices, the goal wasn't to pass a test, get a degree, or receive a certificate to frame on your office wall. It was to master the art of living in God's good world by learning from Jesus how to make steady progress into the kingdom of God. It was less like learning chemistry and more like learning jujitsu. Right? It's this very active, involved way of being in the world. So this morning, we're going to look into ways in which we can begin mastering the art of living an undivided self as neighbors and as citizens. We're going to combine two of them which is fine because you all had cake, you're alert, so two hours, no problem. Got a time joke in there. All right, to do this, it would be most helpful for us to back up, though, and start with the fundamental way in which we view other people. Because if we are honest, we can admit how easy it is to view people as either in the way 
or just part of the way in which we fulfill our lives. And that, Martin Luther King Jr. was trying to shake us free of this false duality several decades ago when he said this in a sermon, I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. April 4, 1967, he said this in a sermon called Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. This sermon was given exactly one year before he was assassinated, killed for calling us to value all people, to begin with loving our neighbor, and yet almost 60 years later, more than half of Americans say that no one knows them well. The percentage of high school students, next slide, the percentage of high school students who report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness shot up from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. Common words that describe our society are conspiracy, polarization, mass shootings, trauma, and safe spaces. One recent study has restaurant owners reporting a dramatic rise and having to eject customers because of excessive rude behavior. What was a very rare occurrence has now become multiple times a week, say the restaurant owners. Another number that has spiked is the amount of nurses who have left the profession due to the rude and even abusive behavior of patients. Author David Brooks, who wrote a phenomenal book called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen, this book was born out of his obsession with two questions over the last eight years. Next slide. Why have Americans become so sad and why have Americans become so mean? He set into these questions and over the last eight years immersed himself in this, studying this as a journalist which helped him learn how to truly see and know people. And he says this, next slide. In this age of creeping dehumanization, I've become obsessed with social skills, how to get better at treating people with consideration, how to get better at understanding the people right around us. I've come to believe that the quality of our lives and the health of our society depends in large degree on how well we treat each other in the minute interactions of daily life. His fantastic language of creeping 
dehumanization led me to think about this picture. Next slide. This is called a sarcophagus. I took this almost nine years ago. It will be in March in Turkey, and I believe the city of Aphrodisias. Next slide. This sarcophagus I took this past fall while in Rome. Sarcophagus, the word, is made up of two Greek words. Sarx, which means flesh, and phagos, which means eater. A sarcophagus is a flesh eater. Next slide. Now, here's the thing. In many ancient cultures, where this came from, they believed that the flesh of a person was bad. They believed that our souls were essentially held prisoners inside of our flesh. So when a person died, the flesh had to be taken off a person in order for the soul to escape. So they would put a corpse in these boxes and then fill it with worms or maggots so that would eat the flesh off them. You're welcome. I know. I know. That's why you ate cake first. Okay? Now, the ancient people called this process excarnation. Excarnation. Now, quick side note within this idea of excarnation. This is one of the reasons why I use the Bible translation that I do. Because it does not use the language in this translation of the flesh is bad, spirit is good. Instead, it says the sinful nature is bad and spirit is good. To call our flesh or body bad is of Greek Gnosticism or Platonism which has led to, please don't miss this, a Christian spirituality that is wildly dysfunctional in its sexuality. We could spend a long time unpacking that. So, this idea then, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a book titled The Secular Age. His main point was that we have entered an age today, what he calls an age of excarnation. He claims that we have lost sight of what it means to be truly human. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, this should rattle you awake because at the center of the biblical narrative is the announcement not of excarnation, but of incarnation. To use Pastor Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of one apprentice of Jesus, the divine became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The heart of the Christian message is a person, Jesus, who revealed and modeled the holiness of being fully human. The divine in flesh and blood, the good news of love and grace incarnated. Are you with me? So Taylor goes on to say that our world is heading in the opposite direction. We have become defleshed people. Not incarnate, but excarnate. We are giving into and participating in the process of becoming less 
human. For example, there was a day when people carried knowledge in their bodies. Think about this. When they cooked food, they did not have a printed out, mathematically organized recipe. They learned how to cook by watching grandma. And how did grandma cook? She used her fingers for salt, flour, right, right, right? She just felt it and put it in because it was body knowledge, if you will, incarnate knowledge is how she cooked with. But Taylor says we live in a new age, one in which no one needs information in their bodies because information exists out there, you know, on the interweb. This is also known as the Google effect. In 2011, there was a study done to try and get a sense of how Google is affecting our brains. The study started out by getting two groups of people together. One group was told to look at a series of information on a sheet of paper for five minutes and then report back to what it was they read. But they were told they would have access to this sheet of information for recall. The second group of people were given the same five minutes, the same sheet of paper, but they were told they would not see this paper again. Not surprisingly, the group who didn't believe they would have access to the information later knew the information far better than the first group. The researchers simply walked that out and determined if the information is in our pockets, attached to a device that we have been become irrevocably attached to, then why would we have to remember much of anything? The Google effect is revealing how we are becoming less human. If I asked you right now to tell me the phone numbers of 10 people you know, how would you do? You, you might get your spouse, maybe mom, maybe work, maybe. My wife is currently uh, substitute teaching long-term for a first-grade class, and she mentioned to the kids this past week, they were talking about uh, technology or something where she said we got onto phones and she mentioned phone numbers and the kids said, what? She said phone numbers and they said, what? She said the, to call people and they go, what's that? Oh, you mean the app that you push? The, the thing called contacts? Uh-oh. So you're thinking, but we don't need to because it's all right there, old timer. Come on, Baldy, get with it. But here's the thing, this isn't about relevance. This is about us paying attention to how we are subtly becoming excarnate. What happens then when we take this idea that is happening to us or we participating in into the idea of reading Love your neighbor as yourself. 
we might have to awaken to the fact that in our current age, we need to be incredibly intentional and disciplined in our practices to, one, live as humans so that we first and foremost see more deeply into the essence of the people right before us who are our neighbors. So rather than seeing Steve next door as that guy with all the annoying political signs in his yard, we might first see him as a human being who longs to belong and who craves meaning. What if our neighbors were first and foremost people who desire to belong and who actually hunger for meaning? Belonging and meaning are not found on apps, but in real flesh and blood relationships. Are you with me? All of this can help us understand how the early church lived and operated. So now I want to take us back into the scripture and see how fascinating, challenging, and what I think is very compelling, how the early church lived. And I think it's actually more realistic and sustainable than the most common version of the American church today. A few weeks ago, we looked at a guy named Barnabas. He who embodied encouragement took a guy who was called Saul, but we now know as Paul, and he helped him become a global church planter. So we're going to look at the journey a little bit. So we'll be in Acts chapter 18. Next slide. After this, Paul's going around, he's planting churches, he's meeting with these communities. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila from Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that's the Roman emperor, had ordered all Jews, you have to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together by trade. They were tent makers. Every Sabbath, he would argue in the synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. Real quick, uh, Athens, Corinth, let's go to a map. You see how close they are, and this little uh, canal that goes in between them is, was known as the Corinth Canal, where he could travel to get there. And he is set to meeting with these churches and these people, this Priscilla and Aquila. Then we keep going. Uh, next slide. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he did what? He just simply in protest, he shook the dust from his clothes and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. You don't want to listen to me? You don't want to hear this? You're not interested? Well, I'll show you on social media. Uh, no, Paul's like, okay, then I'll go over and talk to these people. Then he left the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Now, Crispus, the official of the synagogue, became a believer in the Lord. 
together with all his household, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers and were baptized. I find this so fascinating because the synagogue, the synagogue was a place to uh, gather and discuss or argue, as it says, about that which is deepest within. That's what the synagogue's for. Paul went there to converse with religious folks or people who are interested, wondering about the divine. Then he went to the house of believers, one of them right next to the religious wrestling arena known as the synagogue. And in there, he went to the houses to experience church, the community, to be encouraged. In a letter that was intended to circulate to the many house churches throughout Rome, Paul writes this about these friends Aquila and Priscilla, Romans 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Co-workers how? In tent making and being the church? All of it. Yep. To whom, who, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church where? Oh. So Paul goes to the synagogue because that's where we can have some arguments. We can talk about that which is deepest. We can argue about it. We can dig in. That's great, great, great. But the church, well, we're going to share a meal together. We're going to encourage one another by getting to know one another, by looking one another in the eye and paying attention to who we are together in community in our houses. And then Paul's first letter to the churches that gather in the houses throughout the city of Corinth, now that he's planted, he says this, the churches in Asia send their greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, greet you warmly in the Lord. Now, you have to know in the first century, houses were small. They wouldn't have a whole lot of people. So when we think of a church, you're talking... 15 people gathered in the home? Maybe 20? These are the churches that are in our Bibles. So when people look at us and they go in because of our setting, oh, so you're a really small church. Yet groups of people smaller than that are gathered here are in our scriptures for flipping the world upside down for the way of Jesus. So when somebody says, oh, so you're a really small church, oh. It's not the amount of people. It's how we're living, who we're living for, and how we're living that out in the world, right? Are you with me? Now then, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, not only provided encouragement for Paul, but also literal space for him to say, stay with us as well as for those who are seeking to grow in the divine, people who are the church, they would experience belonging and community in Priscilla and Aquila's house, which I think raises a very good question for us today. Next slide. What if you viewed your house as the church for your neighborhood and you are the pastor? What if you viewed your house as the church for your neighborhood? Because what is becoming more and more common in our society is that the only church that many people might interact with is you. 
I had this conversation a couple weeks ago with my youngest son as we were driving to school, and I said that to him. I said, hey, Jude. Hey, Jude. <laughs> um, you today might be the only church that people interact with. And he goes, wait, what? And I go, we're the church. And so there are kids that might interact with you, and that might be the only time they interact with the church, if you will. And it stuck, because you know what he said to us yesterday? Apparently, he's been taking a poll. He said to uh, us, he said, Mom and Dad, um, no one in my class goes to church. There's one kid who says occasionally he goes. And I said, so then you're the church that they are interacting with. Not to put pressure on my son, but to invite him to love well. If we saw our lives, and even more specifically our houses, as the front porch of the divine, then this could shape how we see and interact with our neighbors and shape the values we live from. And that could create a healthy tension for us, ready, in discerning how we organize our common life together. Which, by the way, is the definition of the word politics. How we organize our common life together. P politics are not the problem. How we organize, practice, and discuss them often is. So that raises the question, how do we live as undivided citizens? Can you see the movement we are in, in the scriptures, in the teaching? Moving from the trampoline we're bouncing off here is to be able to love our neighbor we need to begin by first seeing them made in the image of the divine. They are not a label such as Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal or anything that moves the category in the mind from neighbor to, oh, one of those people. Which takes us to the often quoted and too often misused or misapplied Romans 13. Ready? Next slide. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Anyone heard this before? Or maybe you have used this yourself. You can often hear this text quoted when the preferred leader is in power. Right? Right? And again, because we desire to be a people who live as honest, authentic, and transparent, thanks again, Rex, let's wrestle with the text, beginning with the question, what if we don't like the leadership that has been voted into power? Are we still quoting the scripture? Are we then 
conveniently sidestepping it and walking elsewhere. This could be a good clue as to whether we are holding the text within context. So, Romans 13, in context, teaches us that just because God establishes all authority does not mean God approves of all authorities. Uh, we might want to hang on that one for the rest of our lives. God is always to be considered greater than, not equal to all the powers of this world. That, that means we do not unquestionably bow down to the authorities established in this world because even the best democracy in the world isn't worthy of our allegiance. The key word used twice in this text is the word establish. For God to establish means that God orders the powers similar to how a librarian orders the books in a library but does not necessarily approve of their content. Are you with me? Hopefully, the tension leads us to ask, ask the contextual question. Is Paul, the writer here in Romans, saying to unequivocally submit to the government no matter how horrible it may be. Uh, contextually, Paul's writing to the church in Rome when a gentleman by the name of Nero is the emperor. And Nero, if you study history, is a bad dude. And so is Paul writing, doesn't matter, bow down to Nero no matter what? If so, what about all of the places in Paul's writing where he himself practices civil disobedience through choosing obedience to the kingdom of God? What do we do with all the resistance to evil governments we see throughout Scripture, like Moses and the Israelites? When is civil disobedience a necessary option? Is Paul doing here similar to what we learn of what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Mark? Chapter 12, verse 14 to 17. Next slide. They came to him and said, and that is the, the Sadducees, this religious group comes to Jesus, and you should know the Sadducees are the ones who run the temple. But those who run the temple at the time were in bed with empire hey, you know what, we should kind of hang out with them and, and keep them close by and kind of do some things because it'll be good for our pocketbooks. So they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Do you feel a little ugh coming on, Right? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, which by the way, they're at the temple, and they go, here's a coin. You're not supposed to have a coin in the temple. They brought the coin and asked him, Who's it? And then he asked, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, 
they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This man-made coin had Caesar's image on it. But where is the image of the divine? Where is the image of the divine? In you. Give back to God's what is God's. What is God's? All of me. You want to give that stupid coin to Caesar? Fine, it's his. You give your very whole self to God. And that really crucial point takes us back to the context of Romans 13. Because we need to further look at what Paul was saying leading up to chapter 13. If someone quotes chapter 13 at you, ask them what's in chapter 12, and then ask them what's in chapter 8. Because there is a movement within Romans that leads to this. You can't just pull that out and stick it in someone's face and say, see, no, context. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, church in Rome, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy, to present your bodies, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your not extreme act of worship, reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Discernment and the will of God is what we are looking for here. Then he speaks of the character traits of a faithful follower of Jesus. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Ooh, ooh, competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Not just offer what? Pursue hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with those willing to do menial work. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Thanks for that low bar, Paul. But how countercultural is what Paul's saying? Then and now. Paul is essentially saying, hear this. Do not fight corruption and a government that is understood to be steering things away from Jesus using the same tools and resources that are used to create the chaos. I'd say it like this. Next slide. Live by the character of God, not the games of corruption. That's not how we're going to get anywhere. 
In other words, for the sake of where we sit today, we don't attempt to solve dysfunctional politics by doing even more dysfunctional politics, beginning with violent revolt. Whether that is physical or violent protest or verbal violence via social media, that is not how we engage. If we go back to the foundation of viewing people as created in the image of the divine and we understand our houses and our lives as the front porch of the divine, then we open the door, set the table, and invite others to share a meal. And I would say this, through the art of hospitality and generosity, we create a countercultural community, a politic that lives by the way of the kingdom of God. Come on. What if the table set and shared by way of hospitality and generosity was our center? What if conversation rooted in discernment and desiring to honor the will of God was how we interacted with others? If we take note of the politics of both Paul and Jesus, we see that discernment and the will of God as the goal brought into being with these values. Next slide. Generosity, hospitality, community, blessing, harmony, peaceable living. This is our baseline. And what did we read? It's a theology, theology of word to flesh. What we believe, who we know, we then live out in our day-to-day -day lives in the most minute interactions with others. The divine became human to show us how to live fully integrated human lives. A politic that asks what is needed for us to be a community and a larger society rooted in hospitality and generosity that creates a way for peace. The Hebrew word is shalom, which is wholeness and completeness. We're after setting a table where we can be knit back together. The goal is not esoteric isolation or escape to my preferred politics of comfort, but to become the people of God who live out love generously and with hospitality, which is to be good news for all people. Well, how divine is that? Now, with that, which was small, Sarah McCannelly told me a few weeks ago when we walked through the teaching, Maybe we should do this once a month. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. I'm with you. I think so. But what I want us to do to kind of close our series is uh, stand together, if you would. And I'm going to first read a portion of a psalm, and then I want us to say it together. Because here's the thing, and it's really important. The Hebrew Scriptures often called the Old Testament, a third, at least a third of it, well, actually, at least a third of our Bibles, the whole thing, at least a third of our Bibles are poetry. 
And poetry isn't meant to be read quietly or in our heads. It's meant to be read out loud because we need to hear it. Because poetry doesn't make sense in our brains. It needs to be said because there's a cadence. There's a rhythm. It's doing something. So we should say it out loud. So I want to read it first to us and then have us say it together. Psalm 86, verses 11 to 13. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me a what? Uh, to revere your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my... And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depth of Sheol. Sheol also is often translated as hell. Where we get the word, one of the words that we pull from. So I want us to be able to say this together as both a confession this is where I want my heart to be, my whole, undivided heart. And it's also then the hunger of our heart. God, this is my desire, that I would, in my wholeness, walk with you. So let's say this together. Ready? Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Amen. Gracious God, we bless you for meeting us right where we are. But you just refuse to leave us stuck here. You are inviting us to grow up in you, with you, for your kingdom's sake. God, that we would have open hearts, pliable hearts, for you to continually knit us back together in wholeness that we might make our lives and our homes a front porch to your kingdom, your ways in the world. May we, this church, become your good news for those who are desperate for belonging, who hunger for meaning. May we live in such a way that they see the more, that they see you. And God, our prayer is that people would see you, would get a little bit of a taste, would just pick up on the aroma because once you see, you can't unsee. Once you taste, you can't untaste. And our prayer is that they would take the next right step toward you and with you. 
And it might be because the way we live and how we love, how we interact with them, how we speak to them, and how open we are in inviting them to more. I bless you, God, for your love. I bless you, God, for this community. May we continue to become more and more your good news in this world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.